This is an ABC podcast. Our relationship to food is weird. It's paradoxical. Billions of us eat too much, and yet hundreds of millions of us go malnourished. Nearly a third of the world's greenhouse gas emissions come from our food chain, from burping sheep to tomatoes being trucked thousands of kilometres to make it into your salad, yet we chuck out a third of that food. It actually goes uneaten, wasted, all that global warming for nothing. We die without food and yet we're turning a blind eye to the dire threats to the security of our food supply right now. A pandemic has opened our eyes up to that just a little bit. On Science Friction today, Natasha Mitchell joining you on Ghana Country at Adelaide Writers' Week with two women who live as close to the action as you can get. I woke up the other morning and was reading about a farmer watching his cattle float away and I had tears in my eyes. It is personal to me. It is something that grips my heart like you wouldn't believe and keeps me awake at night. Dr Anika Molesworth grew up on a sheep station near Broken Hill on Willyakali country. She's also a PhD qualified scientist and founding director of Farmers for Climate Action. Her new book is Our Sunburnt Country. I feel that connection and that sense of belonging Every single day, like every morning when I get up at sunrise and I see, you know, the fairy floss pink clouds and this expansive horizon that just goes on forever and I see the corellas flying over or the ducks landing on the dam and I think, gosh, I'm so lucky. Like, this is a place that I want to be forever and this is a place that I will fight for if I think it is hurting and it is suffering. And that's what I see now, that this is a place that... Its future depends on me actually standing up and speaking for it. Climate change, it is increasing the frequency and intensity of extreme weather events like floods, like the bushfires, like the droughts that still continue in many parts of the country, including, you know, where I live in far western New South Wales and beautiful Willakali country. Climate change doesn't just impact the farmer, it impacts every single person, every meal on every plate. Why You Should Give an F About Farming. That's the title of seasoned political journalist, now Guardian Australia's rural and regional editor, Gabrielle Chan's new book. Now, she says she's not a farmer. Well, I happen to fall in love with a farmer, so... That means she's spent the last 25 years working, living and raising kids side by side with a farmer. Land writes a story on your family, so I can picture right now where my son broke his arm trying to jump a bike you know you have favorite trees on the place and that understanding of the way landscape seeps into your bones before I was connected to farming you know you get a million press releases from a million ministerial offices and people that want to get your attention and the agribusiness, agriculture, food stuff was always, oh, that's not the sexy bit of politics. The sexy bit of politics is leadership spills and factional warfare that we see. The or soap the, opera. Yeah, or the one versus the other, whereas actually what I should be giving an F about <laughs> is the stuff 
that I'm living next to and it happened for me slowly like I'm a slow learner I take a while to get my head around things but you know 10 15 20 years the penny slowly starts to drop and you think hang on a minute this is going to have material impacts on our global stability on our response to climate change material impacts on oh zoonotic diseases that cause pandemics trade disruptions, the economy, like all of these things. And yet farming seen as this funny little cottage industry. You know, it's, we used to ride on the sheep's back, but it's no biggie anymore. It's not a big deal. It is central to so many things in our lives. To everything mm. and to our future and not just to our stomachs. It's mm. absolutely at the juxtaposition kind of of everything, isn't it? I think the thing about food is since the green revolution on you know where we learnt to grow lots and lots of food learnt to ramp up our production we kitted ourselves into believing that we'd solved the food problem that we could get food from all around the world and if you wanted to let go of a particular food stuff and industry say milk you'd buy it from new zealand because maybe they could make it cheaper or you'd buy salmon from Norway because they do that best. You know, the whole kind of, for want of a better word, neoliberalism that said, you know, it's just cheapest possible production and forget everything else. In order to feed the masses. In order to feed the masses was the only answer. And I think what we've discovered since the pandemic, not just with food, but with PPE, with all the masks that you're wearing today, Actually, we need to do some things that are critical to our survival. And obviously, food is the biggie. Anika, when you were 12, your parents moved to a sheep farm. Little did they know that they were also landing in a, a long drought. And so yes. I'm interested to understand how that was defining for you yeah. and your climate activism now. It was over like the seasons and the years, watching it get drier, the vegetation disappearing, the dust storms becoming more frequent, dams not refilling, you know, just mud cracks at the bottom of the dam, mm. compared to like when I first stepped onto that property and like my heart going, oh my gosh, there's horizons, my possibilities are, are endless here, to sort of slowly watching the land and the landscape and the community become quieter, you know, the birds disappearing from the trees. That silence <laughs> that in silence. a drought is just palpable, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and you don't often realise it until the rains do come back mm. and you go, oh my gosh. So it was that decade-long millennium drought, so 10 years of little to no rainfall, that really got me engaged in the topic of climate change and opened my eyes to what that actually meant. Okay, I can see the dots connecting here and I'm walking out into the land and like seeing the horizon turn orange from another dust storm rolling in and going the way we people are living on this planet it, it's not right like we are not ensuring a healthy planet my dream is to take over and be a farmer I would love to do that but how am I going to do that if it, it's going to become hotter if it's going to become drier which is what the science is telling me I did my homework I went to university did a bachelor 
in agriculture, then a master's in sustainable agriculture, and then being a sucker for punishment, I did a PhD in the agriculture. <laughs> Much <and environment>. suffering. <laughs> Much Straight suffering. out of a drought into all of that. <laughs> but, no, but you learnt deeply, yeah, didn't exactly. you? I'm, I'm constantly asking questions and leaning in close to the science, to the land, and going, is this really the best way possible? And then I became increasingly frustrated that there is such a wealth of evidence and published literature out there and has been for decades, which is constantly dismissed and downplayed and not actually acted upon. And so I found my own voice and people who actually shared that concern. Other farmers. Other farmers, but not only that concern and that frustration and grief, but that optimism that there is actually a better path we can take and it is right there within our grasp if we actually wanted to reach out and do something different. Gabrielle, your book is also full of intense frustration and a whole lot of very interesting information about how farming has changed in Australia over recent decades and also how policies have changed or not, as the case may be, over those decades as well. So paint a picture for us. Anika touched on it there of how farming life has changed in this country. Well, White Australia was founded on this idea of trading, sending food back to the motherland, England under colonialisation, farming was a protected industry. There were protections, there were tariffs. And I guess from the 80s onwards, which is, happened to be when I started my career as a journalist, that began to change. You know, get big or get out was the phrase. Increased specialisation, so taking away some of the diversity of older style farms, making them more efficient, making them more business focused, turn a business into a lean, mean fighting machine. A big machine. And a I big machine. Big agribusiness, yeah, yeah. the big conglomerates yeah, yeah. moved in. Yeah, and to the point where now the way that a farmer can get a pay rise is to increase their yield. And that often has a short-term effect of increasing the pay packet, but it doesn't take into account longer-term effects. You know, somewhere something has to pay along the line, you know, in farming, and that is either the farmer, the farm worker, the environment, or the consumer. And at the moment, we're expecting this equation to happen without the true cost of the food being priced into the food. The true cost of the production of that food needs to be priced into there because otherwise, one of those elements, the farmer, the worker, the environment, or the consumer has to pay. And the consumer, us, has got used to buying cheap food, food out of season, whatever food we want, whenever we want it. it. It's an extraordinary indulgence, actually, isn't it, that isn't realistic at all. But we've got used to that. So what would it take to factor in the true cost of making food, growing food, so that farming could be done differently? I think there needs to be signals around the farmer that also cares for their environment 
if a farmer wants to, say, plant out a lot of trees, often they don't get paid for it. Sometimes they get little grants here and there. Um, so that's one of the elements of the story. The consumer, the eater, as I call them in the book, is a big part of the story. You might choose the cheapest oranges from Brazil, but if that means down the track that Australia doesn't have an orange industry, are you happy with that? Are you happy if sometimes that tap will be turned off and you will not be able to get oranges in winter in Australia? Now, a lot of these questions, I think, are they're very vexed questions. So when I talk to the policy experts in this realm, they will say, well, you know, if you're a single mother in Western Sydney, you want the dollar milk, you want the cheapest possible milk because you can't afford it. And who are we to say that that person shouldn't be able to feed their kids? But it comes at another cost. Now, there are, I guess, threads coming together now and ecosystem services, as they call them, is where you get paid for an environmental service. And I think that's starting to come in and that's already happening. Paint that picture for us. So science already measures landscape in terms of quality and value. So scientists have a value for the quality of the water in the creek, the quality of the ground cover, the biodiversity on the land. In other countries, they're starting to pay for some of those services now. So the UK, having come out of Brexit, coming out of the common agricultural policy where they were heavily subsidised for food production, they've now flipped and they're talking about paying farmers for environmental services. So they will be paid for improvements in their land. It's starting to happen here, but they're very fledgling programs. And, and it's I, all over the shop. I mean, you, you point to a sort of policy vacuum or bits and pieces of policy in Australia, but really there's not a national food policy. There's not a lot of cohesive thinking and, it, and, and it, everything's siloed. Yeah, yeah. There's climate over there and there's food over there and farming and ag and, you know, it's not integrated. There's no big yeah. vision in Australia. I would have a minister for ag and food that has the same status as a defence minister because it's that important. What do we think of that? I mean, you can't run a country unless you've got food. And increasingly, the way that food interaction interacts with climate policy is so important. You know, this is going to govern how we respond to climate. So these are big issues. The other thing Australia does really badly is we've got really innovative policy brains and they come up with really fantastic policies. There were organisations like Land and Water Australia, uh, the National Climate Change Research Facility. All of these organisations were thinking about how to integrate these policy areas so you weren't thinking about things in a siloed way. They all get chucked out. New government comes yeah. in and they throw them out. And a senior public servant who is really in the middle of all of this said to me, it's like we're trying to build higher stories on a building by using the bricks and timber from the lower floors. We keep falling down on our asses and no one can understand why. So, you know, there is a real need for some integrated long-term thinking past the next election cycle. Anika, for you... There are solutions everywhere you look, and you've had a, a, many conversations with young and old farmers, young, old and middling farmers uh, around the world, 
who are really responding to the challenges of our time, particularly mm. climate change. And Australia has a very particular habit of saying, well, any mitigation of climate change is going to come at the cost of agribusiness, for example. There, mm. there seems to be this dichotomy, this battleground that's constantly set up, rather than acknowledging that there are opportunities for both to thrive yeah. if we think differently. Yeah, and that particular narrative really irritates me that we can't do more about climate change because it will hurt the farmers or the rural communities. I think that's a particularly dangerous and toxic narrative to have it spoken at a federal level in this country because those who are feeling the impacts very really today are the farmers, are the rural communities, are the ones who are witnessing and experiencing those droughts, those floods, those heat waves, those bushfires, the changes in pests and disease distribution and prevalence. It's impacting their hip pockets, it's impacting the mental health, the community stability, all of these things. As Gabrielle describes it, farmers marinate in climate change. But I mean, I think we also have to acknowledge that the political debate hasn't helped that because from 2011, when Tony Abbott weaponised climate change as a political opportunity, you got this polarisation, I saw it around home, where if you're a conservative voter, then you couldn't vote for any climate change policy. Climate change was so connected with Labor that if you're in a conservative seat, as I am, I'm in Michael McCormack's seat, there was a period where we went from 2007 and everyone was talking about climate change and John Howard himself was talking about putting a carbon price in. The National Farmers Federation by 2008-9 is saying it is the biggest issue farmers are dealing with to 2011 when Tony Abbott rests the leadership from Malcolm Turnbull goes into the 2013 election with an axe, the carbon tax objective. And so suddenly all talk of climate change shuts down around the untouchable. in farming mm. communities mm. and you start to get people quoting you know, the likes of Ian Plymer and various other people. Uh, the geologist turned climate denier. The waters around how much will it cost? It'll cost us too much. We're only a little cog in the wheel. That changes the whole nature of the debate. So farmers are now questioning the science of climate change. So, Anika, is that something that you've observed, that political lens shifts everything? It disengages people? Yeah, it does. I think it also does real reputational damage to farmers too, like making us seem like we are very like out on the science and climate deniers where, yeah, like we have actually come a long way in the last five years, I would say. And an organisation like Farmers for Climate Action shows that, I guess, because we've got 8,000 farmers in Farmers for Climate Action and we only established, you know, five, six years ago. And, you know, the overwhelming support, you know, pouring out of rural places now, and it's obviously growing and people are raising their voices as they're becoming increasingly aware and alarmed of the changes that are occurring because these extreme weather events are not obviously one in 100 year events anymore. It's you know, every season it's, you know, we're the hottest, we're the driest, we're all of this, we're seeing new pests, whatever. So, yes, I think a lot more farmers are 
aware of what is occurring and are feeling more confident to speak out about climate change is an issue and it is an issue for me and are gathering information looking at the science and going okay well this is what it actually means for my region and I better be changing practices but because of the rate and the scale of climate change we need to be accelerating both climate literacy and what we're doing to prevent the climate destabilizing. As Gabrielle described, farmers are under intense pressure to be highly productive in output. We're paying less and less for food. It's causing real problems for mm. what they can do creatively, how they can innovate, how they can experiment, how they can try new systems, mm. new ways of thinking, new ways of acting. So is that something you've observed? Or for those who have broken through and tried new things, what are they doing and how are they managing to do it given all the pressures that they're dealing with in the modern food marketplace? Yeah, I think it takes a lot of courage and to have the courage to change practices, to break the mould of thinking, to step outside the safety of the culture of the region or what has been farmed in this place for the last generation or two generation if it's a multi-generational farm. Like it does take a lot of courage and you need good like social support networks around you and you need like, you know, family members to go, yeah, like I'll back you and I'll stand. Give it a go. Yeah, give it a go. Mm. You need the finances to do that. You need the resources on the ground to do that as well as the resources in your pocket to be able to do that. So you need a few stars to align to actually change your practices to something quite different. And we need to do something quite different in this day and age. So what are you seeing that is quite different? In terms of how we can be better looking after soil, biodiversity, water resources, and producing healthier food and reducing emissions, there are a suite of things that we can do, but they will be quite nuanced and local because the way that my family farm runs and what we can do on our family farm is actually quite different from what our neighbour can do because we actually have different resources at our disposal that we can call upon. So yes, there are ways that we can reduce methane emissions from ruminant animals, from sheep, cattle, goats, uh, whether it's through feed additives or genetics. Yes, there are ways that we can reduce nitrous oxide emissions from fertilisers, from nitrogen fertilisers, from urea, which is to do with you know the placement, the rate, the timing, the equipment. Some farmers will be able to install solar panels and battery storage and purchase an EV. And I'm a very proud EV owner, but I know that's a luxury that we were able to purchase an electric vehicle. So it will look different for every farmer what options are out there. But the story of hope is that there are options out there for everyone, I think. Mm. A final comment from both of you on what role the eaters have all of us, what role do we have in this conversation about farming and food and the future? The way we make our choices, the way we express our priorities to our local MPs, it matters to us as eaters as much as it does to a farmer. And I think we have to start acknowledging that farming policy, agricultural policy, agricultural questions yes. are not just for farmers, but Anika. for eaters. If we are disconnected from the farmer, 
if we don't actually appreciate what goes into producing food and fibres, you know, the importance of soil fertility, of rivers running clear and to full health, the biodiversity that's the foundation for any farming business, if we're disconnected from that, then we don't actually respect that food and farmer. We don't love it and cherish and celebrate it. And so we're inclined to scrape half the meal into a bin at the end of the night. Or and the scale of food waste in the world is, what, a third of the world third. Pr food produced mm. is wasted. Horrific. That just blows my mind. Yeah, every when time you I think of figure. the water that went into actually growing that food, the nutrients, the time, the labour, the resources, the finances, everything that went into producing that meal on that plate in front of you, and then to throw it in the bin, what a waste. And also, you know, the contribution to greenhouse gas emissions is it's incredible. Yeah, what role do eaters play? A very big role. I mean, we are choosing the food system by every time we sit down, you know, what we eat, how we waste it, what price we pay for it, where that food has come from. All of these things flow on right back to the farmer out there in the field. And so we have to be very conscious about how we're interacting with the food system and choosing as individuals to create the food system that we want, one that is actually healthier for both people and the planet. Hear, hear. Anika Molesworth, Gabrielle Chan. Farmer, scientist with Farmers for Climate Action, Dr Anika Molesworth, she's author of the very practical, very hopeful book, Our Sunburnt Country. Journalist and rural and regional editor with Guardian Australia, Gabrielle Chan's new book is Why You Should Give an F About Farming. Really fantastic reads, both of them. More details on the Science Friction website. Hey, thanks to the Adelaide Writers' Festival for hosting us. You can find me on Twitter, at Natasha Mitchell, and I'll catch you next week. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.